What's up, everyone? Man, did I miss you guys. Thank you for the freedom you guys give me to enjoy some time uh, with family, and I'm excited to be here with you guys. It was heartbreaking to leave because uh, I mentioned in my last message uh, about a month ago, actually, that I had been spending years on one particular topic in the Bible that was just so enthralling to me. It was the will of God, and so we had one message that we went through every single passage of the will of God in the entire Bible, which is awesome for some of us. For other of us, it was like, this is way too long. But I wanted us to have a really, really clear version that we could see in black and white exactly what the will of God is. But what happened is that when you address that, when you bring light to it, it actually exposes the question of, is God in control or not? Which is an ancillary topic to it. And so if you remember from the will of God, we, we, we looked at exactly what the scriptures say explicitly is the will of God. Does anybody remember? All right. There's five of them. The first one was the cross. The second one was salvation. It is the will of God that people are saved. The third was obedience. The fourth was rewards, and the fifth was joy. Every single passage on the will of God can be reduced to one of those five. Now, that is awesome, except if you were hoping that the will of God was going to tell you who to marry, or what career to take. Or should I travel to Japan? Should I travel to Costa Rica or El Salvador or all of them? Or should I, what should I do? I, I've been broken up by girls who claim the will of God many times. Now, which is different than Janelle's because she's actually correct in the term of obedience. But I was just broken up with, with the will of God because they didn't like me, which is kind of hurtful at the time. But I married up. So, <laughs> this topic, when we reduce the will of God to the five explicit things, it begs the question, is God in control or not? And what it does, it takes a stick and it pokes it in the face of a bear in Christianity. I'm about to offend probably some of you guys, maybe your theology. Don't worry, I was offended myself. For many years, I grew up saying all these different things, believing these things, find the same scriptures. And so if you believe differently, I don't mind, I don't care. I just ask that you research it for yourself. Even this past month, I've been reading books and like, am I an idiot for this? Why does nobody else draw these lines together? So as an uneducated fool, I'm going to show you what I believe the truth of God reveals regarding this topic. Is that okay with you guys? So Jesus, we just ask that your word to be manifest and brought before us. Lord, we don't want to have cleverness of man or mind, but we just want to know what the truth is. So Jesus, would you help us understand your word in Jesus' name? Amen. So this topic, is God in control or not, is actually the topic of God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Because it assumes that God is not controlling everything. And when I talk about the will of God, people are like, well, I believe in God's sovereignty. Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, I do too. No, apparently you don't. I'm like, I don't understand. Can you give me what your definition of God? I actually look up God's sovereignty. Like I got put in my place and was like, I thought I understood God's sovereignty. Here it is. The mainline belief in Christianity for many groups and denominations is this, that God's sovereignty is the absolutely sovereign down to the details, plans, every event, and renders them certain. That God controls plans and renders every single thing in life as certain. You look at major theologians, a lot of my heroes, right? John Piper, R.C. Sproul, like a lot of guys I look up to, I read their books, I'm just fascinated by their thinking. Many of these people believe that God controls, renders certain every single detail on earth, including the Holocaust 
John Piper says that it's for his glory that God does it. It's part of his mysterious plan. R.C. Sproul says, we cannot allow the theory that, that life is not determined because if one rogue molecule gets out of place, then the whole entire world is doomed. So this view of God's sovereignty has been surging for the past 40 years. Particularly 40 years, this, this terminology, God's sovereignty, God's control, has been growing and growing. What happened 40 years ago? Why is it all of a sudden so popular now? I started doing some research in the past 40 years, we've sold more Bibles than in any other time in history. And we've sold one particular version of the Bible. Do you know what it is? NIV. In the early 70s, the NIV was produced, and it sold 450 million copies of the NIV. You with me? And this has been the translation of our time. Most of our parents and most of us have probably been raised in the NIV because it's, it's really easy to read, right? It came from the thouest thou, thou is so holy, thy king, you know, to Jesus we love you. You know, it was this helpful, you know, smoothing of the text. Now, what's unique about that is that the NIV, if you didn't know this, is actually a thought-for-thought -thought translation, it's not word for word in the Greek and Hebrew text. It's a thought for thought. No big deal, right? The King James, or the New King James, is actually word for word. And so that's why you find different translations say different things. And, but the NIV by far took the show when it came to selling Bibles because it's so accessible. Now, so what? Why does this matter? Because in the NIV, the NIV is actually, I believe, responsible for the surgence of God's sovereignty and this notion of God is in control. If you do a word search in the NIV Bible and you search the word sovereign, it appears 305 times, most generally in the context of, oh, sovereign God. How many times is the word sovereign or sovereignty actually found in the Greek or Hebrew? Zero. Interesting. The word, you can go look it up. Don't take my word for it. Go look it up. If you look in the original Greek and Hebrew, you can go to blb.org, search New King James, and type in the word sovereign. It comes with a big goose egg. You're like, huh? And you search NIV. Boom, 300 passages. What about the word control? Huh, because these are related. So I look up in the NIV. How many times does the word control appear in the NIV? 51 times. Many instances, such as Job 37.15, which says, uh, Job's being rebuked, do you know how God controls the clouds? Philippians 3.21, it says, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, you with me? Those two words, the Greek word there doesn't mean control, it means formed, it means created. Do you know how God forms, creates the clouds? That's a whole lot different than, do you know how God controls the clouds? How about the Greek word in Philippians? That Christ brings everything under his control. That word doesn't mean control, it means authority. That Christ brings everything under his authority. He is above all. Much different connotation. Are you with me? So how many times does the word control then appear in the Greek and Hebrew? Nine times. NIV says 51 times. In the actual Greek and Hebrew text, the word control appears nine times. Eight of those times, self-control. <laughs> self-control. The only other single reference to the word control is in the Old Testament talking about a king of Assyria taking control of a city. 
Not a single passage of the entire Bible has any connotation that God is controlling anything when you look at the literal words. Because the Greek and the Hebrew have different words for formed, create, fashioned, ordered. The Greek words are so particular, but the NIV, and I believe probably well, you know, okay, same difference, right? I'll tell you it's not the same difference. Added these different words for us. And so no wonder, 450 million copies, all of us, we know, we know these passages, we, we remember them, and so we repeat what we have been learning. So why were these concepts inserted in the NIV? Why was that? So I started like researching the origins of the NIV, right? I'm a little Bible nerd these days. So the Bible, the NIV translation of the Bible is spearheaded by the Christian Reformed Church of America. They're one of the forefront leaders. The Christian Reformed Church of America, huh? Well, that's actually, as I look back, is related to the Dutch Reformed Churches from the Netherlands. Hmm. Theologically, both those groups are Calvinists. Now, I won't talk about Calvinism, but Calvinism has the distinct difference that Calvinism kind of has this overtone that everything is determined and predestined and controlled. So the NIV, spearheaded by the Dutch Reformed, American Reformed Church, which leans Calvinist, obviously is using these words and demonstrating control and sovereignty. Interesting, isn't it? So what about the word sovereign? It's like, have I just missed the whole interpretation of the word sovereign? What does the dictionary actually say about the word sovereign? It says this, having supreme rank, power, or authority, supreme, preeminent, indisputable, a sovereign right, greatest in degree, utmost, or extreme, being above all others in character, importance, excellence, efficacy, and potent. Did anybody see the word control in there? See, I believe in God's sovereignty, but I actually believe in God's sovereignty as it relates to what the Bible gives us definition, which is God is an authority above all supreme. I reject the notion that God is in control. Let me explain. Coleman, I was talking to Coleman earlier this week, and I was kind of like describing, like, hey, I found this thing in the NIV. It's crazy. No one finds this. Why am I finding this? He's like, oh, that's really cool. So um, how does this, like, practically work into my life? <laughs> it's like, great. It's like, I appreciate the criticism. <laughs> I'm going to show you how this makes a difference. Because you might be like, God is in control. God is in charge. Tomato, tomato. Does it make any difference? I tell you that there is no single great difference in all of our theology than this one. In fact, I've been so enthralled in this for the years. This is what I'm going to de dedicate my life work into publishing the truths of the scriptures for this. I hope to never preach this again to you guys, or that often, but I feel that this is really inspired, that people need to see this difference because I believe there's no other important truth that will govern and decide how you decide to live your life and how you believe your role begins and God's role ends. So let me give you the differences and show you how this belief changes everything. No other question will have such a profound impact on your belief system than this I'm going to show you what I believe are the five most important areas of your life in your belief system and how the answer to this question is going to tilt you one way or the other. Are you ready? So the first one is this. Whether you believe God is in control or in charge determines what you believe about the lost. Do you believe God is in charge or in control? Because how you answer that question is going to determine what you believe about the lost, the unsaved. If you believe that God controls everything, you believe that whoever is going to be saved will be saved. I was talking to somebody who's a very, like, God is in control. I'm like, so, you know, what if you don't go on a mission trip? I don't know. It doesn't matter. 
They're going to be saved whether I'm there or not. It's like, wow, really? Really? He's like, your life has no material difference. No. He's like, God orchestrates everything down to the littlest detail, including people's salvation. I asked, including also God's rejection or people's rejection of God? He's like, yeah. He's like, I can't explain it, but God renders certain their rejection. He's like, wow, really? We're like, this is real life now, huh? You know, I'm like, I can't believe this. And this is a brand new thought. So basically, your life has no material difference in whether people's lives come to know God. But the absolute clear truth that we get from the scriptures as we look from the will of God is that the mission of God stated explicitly countless times over, actually not countless, many times over, is that it's God's will that people are saved. The will of God, Jesus speaks exclusively when he talks about the will of God is for salvation. It's amazing. He even goes so far as to say, it is not the will of God that anyone perish. It's the will of God that no one perishes, but people perish without knowing Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved. So how does someone get saved? By hearing. How does someone hear? By someone preaching. How does someone preach? By being sent. I just repeated Paul's words. Your life matters to the lost. If you don't believe that, you're not going to be motivated to be sent. I'm so thankful that our group is sending people out to Columbia to go preach the news and to love on people because that matters. It matters that we go. It matters that we speak. It matters that we love. And how do you generally extend the offer of salvation to people you believe don't have a choice in it or not? If you believe there's no option, that there's no use in preaching the gospel, how can you genuinely say to all who wants to receive him? It's disingenuous. If you believe God is ordained and orchestrated and controlling the salvation of people, I don't see how you can offer salvation in a clear heart and clear conscience. Other, salvations, other people's salvations are not dependent upon you, but your life matters in bringing people to God. The other problem with a strong view of God's control in this way is that God is creating people to go to hell, which is very troublesome for my theology. I don't know about you, but that really bothers me. That doesn't sound like a good father to me. So does God, if God controls everything, does that mean he's creating people for the explicit purpose to go to hell? And you know what? Theologians say yes. You know how they reason it and say God has to show justice. He has to show that he means what he says and that there is justice, there's right and wrong, and so people are created to be the demonstrations of the wrong. I just, I can't, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, how can this be? But this is a very p- tough pill to swallow, and so I'm like, God, would you reveal the scriptures to me about why people aren't saved? Could you reveal the scriptures? I'm searching all over the place, and people are getting the nuances and the weeds of these different things. And you know what the scriptures tell us? Luke 8, 11, it says this. Jesus just finished telling the parable of seeds scattered and birds coming down and stealing the seeds. And he gives the interpretation of this parable. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then... The devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Are you seeing this? The scriptures are blaming a source for why people aren't being saved. It's the devil. It's not just so that they're deceived, it's so they will not believe and be saved. Notice the word that it takes away or steals. Wow, that really sounds just like Jesus distinguishing himself. I come to give life and the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
It's almost like they're related. Hint, they are. Number two, whether you believe God is in control or in charge determines what you believe about Satan and evil. If you believe that God controls every single detail of life, including evil and tragedies, and renders them certain, we have a big issue about evil. And it's this. How do you distinguish the works of God and the works of Satan? If God controls everything, how do you tell the difference? Is there a difference? I don't have the answer. Isn't in that context God controlling Satan? And some theologians say that, well, God controls Satan, but he's not responsible for it. I know that's English, but it makes no sense. But that doesn't make sense with the scriptures either. Let me show you. 1 John 3 8 says, The reason, everyone say reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's works. So if everything that happens is under God's control, then why would God need to send his Son to destroy something he's controlling? I don't get it. Does anybody get it in this room? Because I, I don't. And that's pretty confusing to me, to a God who's all-powerful and his ways are all perfect. It feels pretty inefficient. Again, I'm troubled by this. Can you tell? I love God. I love the goodness of God. I love his heart. I, I, I don't feel like I need to defend God's character and his heart, but I want to. And I believe his scriptures tell us that. How about first or 2 Corinthians 4.4? 4? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Again, the blame for lost souls is the devil, not God's control. For me, I can't look at the destruction caused by Satan and say that God purposed it for that outcome and made sure it happened exactly that way. The scriptures point to the current and proactive workings of Satan that we would resist. Remember that the passage, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's in James. Why would we need to resist if God's controlling it all? I don't get it. This leads in the next thing, which is number three. It's whether you believe God is in control or in charge determines what you believe about the condition of the world. You have to ask yourself, ask yourself, is the world as it should be or is the world as it shouldn't be? Think of the world right now. Is it exactly as God would like it and plan for it to be or is it not? If God controls everything and makes it certain, then the world is as it should be. But if God does not control everything, then the world is not as it should be. Is our current condition what God wanted? If it is, what good is your life to make it better? This is, if this is exactly what God wanted, then why does your life matter? Why go to Columbia? Why go on any missions trip? Why get it? Why love people? If, it, if the game is fixed, if it's all determined, why? But if the world isn't as it should be, oh man. Oh man, if the world is not as it should be, then that means our lives matter. It means that our lives are significant, that we actually can shape and co-create with Jesus to make the world better. And this truth will impact every single motivation you have inside of you. It answers whether the question in your life makes a difference or not. For me, this is where it all is. is that I believe the world is not as it should be. My life does make a difference, and I can make an impact. Our mission as believers is to see the world and declare, this is not right. This is not how it should be. The world can be different and should be different, and I'm going to make it different. 
I believe the scriptures point to the fact that the world isn't as it should be. A few examples. I told you 1 John 3, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. That sounds like the current state of things weren't satisfactory to God, to me. Romans 12, 2. Test and approve what the will of God is. Why would you need to test and approve what the will of God is if everything wasn't already his will? How about Jesus weeping over Israel? Why did Jesus weep over Israel? Because they didn't receive him as Savior. They didn't recognize him. God before his own people, and they don't even know who he is. Jesus weeps over them rather than, woohoo, this is exactly what I wanted. How I control it to be. How about Jesus praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why would Jesus need to pray for God's will to be done on earth if it wasn't already happening exactly as he was controlling? Remember, Jesus couldn't do miracles in his own hometown. Sounds like Jesus wanted to do miracles but couldn't. It sounds like the world wasn't as it should be when Jesus was trying to do miracles there. And last, what about rewards and inheritance? If God is controlling everything, what's the point of rewards and inheritance? It doesn't materially make a difference if we can't not do something. So if we believe that the world isn't as it should be, it demands an answer from ourselves about us. This is number four. Whether you believe that God is in control or in charge determines what you believe about your own significance. This is where it gets good. If it wasn't good already. Are you guys okay? This is good stuff. What you believe, if whether God is in control or in charge, determines what you believe about your own significance. You either are a lowly sinner waiting for the bus to come and pick you up and take you to heaven, or you are partnered with the God of the universe to renew all things. Either your life matters or doesn't. If God's totally in control of all details and circumstances, either your life and decisions don't matter, or you are co-creating and co-redeeming with Jesus. I'll take the second, please. And if you believe everything is predetermined and controlled, how can you have any hope that any choice will make a difference? Why would you pray if everything was in God's control? See, I believe God has called us into participation to renew the world. I believe God has welcomed us into the breakthrough of the world. Breakthrough happens with us. And that's why I don't even get the logic of God is in control. Let's just suspend all these other things just for a second. Just listen to me. When you say God is in control, cool. Where's God? Where is he? Bingo. Inside of you. I won't go through the mountain of passages, but tell, let me tell you there's a ton of them. God is in you. He is in you, meaning that if God is in control and God is in you, guess where that winds up? Back in our hands. Amazing, isn't it? How do you say God is in control and remove yourself from the fact that God is living inside of you? It means that the move of God, this is the key note for tonight. It means that the move of God is manifested by the actions of the saints. If you don't take anything away from tonight, this is that every move of God is manifested by the saints. Has God coming alive in his people and making something work inside of them? How does God materially operate in the world? It's through you and me. The move of God is through you and me. I see Jesus every single day. And it's in the eyes and the lives and the hearts of all the people around me. 
I don't know about you, but I haven't seen Jesus climb a tree and rescue a cat. But I see my brothers and sisters feeding and clothing and loving the homeless, and that is Jesus alive. Amen? So to say that God is in control is to simply ignore that Christ is living in you. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God dwells within you? It means abode, it means home. It's an affectionate home. God is inside of you, he's living through you and loving you. It's the most amazing thing in all of the universe that God decided to give up the cloud and the pillar of fire and to make the move of God happen through you and live in you. So to say that God controls everything without you is to ignore everything said about you, too. The Bible says a lot of things about you. When Jesus left the earth, it says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Sounds pretty significant. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Sounds like a big honor and privilege. He says, you were given authority over all the enemy. You have been given authority. You have been given a commission to all the nations, Matthew 28. You have been given the mission to reconcile people to God, 2 Corinthians 5. You were prophesied that you would crush the head of Satan. Because of you and all this and more, Jesus was able to look at us in the future and say, you will do greater things than me. Come on. You will do greater things than Jesus because of all the things that he has promised and declared about you. To me, it sounds like we were given control, does it not? All this, God is in control. Actually, I think the scriptures to me look like we're in control. We're kind of responsible. Why don't people get healed? Maybe because God's people aren't praying for healing. How about that? Why is there disease and destruction? Maybe it's because God's people are rolling over and doing nothing. Could that be the reason why? That we have sickness and disease and we permit there's souls that are perishing because God's people sit back and say, I'm not going to do anything because God's in control. But we don't think about it that way. We just think to do nothing. Here's a couple of things to think about when people say God is in control. Does anybody ever say God is in control when something good happens? I got a raise, man. I found a $200 bill in my pocket. God is in control. No. It's always calamity. It's always tragedy. It's always death. It's destruction. It's disease. It's cancer. My mom just recovered from cancer. And it was amen, right? And I could not help when people were like, well, God's got a bigger plan. No, he doesn't. 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 This is not his plan. God is not giving you cancer. You do not need any more humility. My mother's a saint. She's the greatest person I've ever known. Like, what else does she have to learn that cancer can give her? You know, it's like, come on, people. Like, no, we, we break agreement and say, cancer, you need to get out. You are a violator in this body. And we're going to pray with authority because Jesus is in me and telling you to get out. And she's cancer-free. Amen. That's how it ought to be. But when we say God is in control, it's almost always when something bad's happening. And the other funny thing, number two, is that usually we say God is in control because we kind of want to not be involved. Don't worry, brother. God is in control. Don't worry about it. Terrible, your car burned down. God is in control. 
Don't worry about it. God is in control. Saying God is in control to me is typically used as a get-out-of-jail-free card for the circumstance you're presented with. It's the best way for a Christian to remove themselves from any possible involvement. Maybe second to, I'll pray for you. It's like, hey man, I got a big problem. Oh man, I'll pray for you. That, that doesn't really help my exact circumstances right now, but I'll, I'll take the prayers. I don't know about you, I'm a violator many times of knowing I could do something for someone. Instead, I say, I'll pray for you. You know what? I probably only prayed for them maybe about 4% of the time. I'm just being honest. When we say, I'll pray for you, does anybody feel convicted that they've not prayed for them? And so now whenever I say, I'm going to pray for you, like, I tell them, this is awkward. I have to pray for you right now because I'm kind of a tool and I'm going to really forget later. And I don't want to forget, even if it's short. And so about a year ago, I fell victim to this. There's a guy who I did not really like, particularly. (laughs) And he called me in an emergency situation. He had been evicted. He had no food. He had no money. He had been kicked out of his place. And he was sitting on the side of the street with all this stuff. It's like at 5 p.m. He's like, I, no one has taken my call. My own family has abandoned me. It's like, why did I pick up the phone? <laughs> if you would have left a voicemail, I would have checked it like six months later and this would have been all gone, you know? Like, and so I talked to him, he's like, and he's like, I just, I need you to pray. I need break, I need a miracle. And it's like, dude, I'm going to pray for you. And we're like, Jesus, would you, God, provide? And then I hung up. And I'm driving my truck with a free schedule. And God says, I did provide and it was you. Ouch. But I said, don't worry, man. God's going to provide. It just won't be me. And God is like, actually, it ought to be you. James 4, 17, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's like, man, I'm blessed beyond the legal limit. I have a truck. I have an open schedule. I have money in my pocket. I'm actually the miracle right now that he needs. And I get to decide... Am I his miracle? That literally was the, the question I'm going to say. Am I, will I self-identify with me being the breakthrough that God wants me to be for him? Because God desires and designs a breakthrough, but we also have to accept it and partner with it. I don't want to think about all the opportunities I've had to be someone's breakthrough, and I said, no. I don't want to think about the crazy things that maybe could have happened if I just would have said yes to Jesus in the moment. When my excuse for not getting involved is God is in control, I'm actually minimizing the move of God. Why? Because God moves through me. He moves through you. So when you reject that, when you pawn it off and and say, God, somewhere over there is in control. I have no idea how he's going to do it, but somehow he's going to do it. You've actually just limited the breakthrough. You've limited the move of God that he actually desired to do. You can't do anything against the plans of God. Actually, the scriptures say that the Pharisees rejected God's plan for them. You see, the enemy, I played right into the playbook of the enemy. He wants you to say God is in control so you can sit back and do nothing. Think about it. The enemy actually wants you to say God is in control so you can do nothing. Why? It's because there's a couple particular passages in the scriptures. The first is Romans 16.20. Look at this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your foot. Who's crushing Satan? You. 
I'm not going to get involved because God's in control. The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's works. You'd be given a really big foot to destroy some devil works. And so when you pull back and say, I'm not going to, you are permitting evil to continue to reign. When God has given you authority otherwise, Luke 10, 18, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. We're not talking about animal rights here. We're talking about demons and principalities. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to come over all the power of the enemy. Satan is begging for you to say God is in control and go back to Instagram or BuzzFeed. He's begging for you not to pay attention to the scriptures. He's begging for you to sit back and say, God's got it. I don't have to. I'm begging you to know that Christ is alive in you, wanting to move, wanting to be the breakthrough, and that the world does not need to be as it is. Amen? Last one. Whether you believe God is in control or in charge determines what you believe about the Father's heart. I won't ask people to raise hands, though I almost accidentally... But a lot of people in us in this room have probably had controlling fathers. Does anybody think, like, my father was so controlling, it was amazing? And speak fondly? No, it's not usually an attribute that we usually link together with an admirable trait. No one says my father was so wonderful, he controlled everything. Control destroys relationships. Control destroys relationships. Think of the prodigal son... Jesus revealing the Father's heart for us to the story of the prodigal son. The son, remember, asked, I want my entire inheritance now. Studying that in the Hebrew, this is crazy. It's basically saying, F you, I want you dead, is what that means. When a son asks for his father to give his inheritance now, he's saying, I want you dead. The father did not control the son. He didn't say, I ain't giving you a red set until I'm dead. In the, you know, he didn't do that. He says, I love you enough not to control you. The father wept. The father did not enjoy, did not agree with the path, but he did not control. And so the father was on the lookout for the son to come back and return. I love you enough not to control you. We're also the bride of Christ. You know that we, the saints, the believers in, in Christ, we're the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. Just read some of the scriptures about the responsibility of the groom to the bride. The groom, you're supposed to die and give yourself up for the bride. That doesn't sound very controlling to me. And so principally, in the relationship of marriage, is that the groom is never to control the bride. The groom is supposed to die for the bride, to give himself up for her, not to control her. So biblically, as we identify ourselves as the bride, the nature of God controlling us doesn't even relate in the metaphor that Jesus gives us for our relationship with him. And finally, even the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.25, love, joy, peace, patience, right? Gentleness, self-control. Self-control. One of the eight times in the New Testament, the only time control appears in the New Testament is talking about self-control. It's against the nature of God to control others. Let me close with this. I'm sorry I've gone long. Is this okay? Let me close with this. Not to make a big deal of this. Oh, that's too late to say that. This topic, for me, shapes my entire theology. I wasn't always in this camp. You don't have to agree with me. But there's a reason I have such a ferocious 
appetite for life knows that every morning I wake up, I'm like, I get to co-create with Jesus. I get to co-redeem the world. The truth about God's participation with us in a broken world is the single greatest biblical truth of my life. I hope it is yours. And it changes everything. It determines what you feel about the lost, about Satan and evil, about the condition of the world, about your significance and the Father's heart. Those are all really high stakes, if you ask me. And when I think of all that Christ has done for me, and what he's given me, he's given me the keys, he's given me his presence, he's given me the mind of Christ. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours about all the amazing things that Christ has done in you. I ask myself, it is inexcusable for my life to be boring and plain and controlled. It's inexcusable for my life not to be amazing and for me to take the biggest swing at changing the world that ever has existed for me. So here's my aim is I want you to live every day like life matters. Live every day like souls are being ransomed into heaven because you are simply alive because that's the truth. Live every day like your existence is actually crushing evil. In the startup land that I'm in, we're like, crush it, right? And we talk about that as being a metric for success. Every day you're alive, you're actually participating in the crushing of evil. It's your choice. And live every day like you're making a difference. But wait, there's one final thing. I actually made a mistake. There's actually one passage in the Bible that Jesus actually refers to control. Are you ready? It's John 10, 28. And I give them eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you want to find the smallest, remotest thing that Jesus even infers control, it's not about how you live. It's not about your decisions. It's that once you're his... He's never letting you go. Your salvation is secure. I will never let anyone snatch them out of my hand. You don't want to mess with Jesus on that one. I like that kind of control. I don't call it control. I call it security. I call it a good daddy. I'm done. I love you guys.